the experiment here was really to, to think about which is going to be the chain that onboards an app with 100 million users. Because of Solana's performance advantages, uh, it is maybe the first and only chain to reach that 100 million users on a single app. This episode is brought to you by Das London, Blockworks' number one institutional crypto conference where all the top institutions and people in crypto are going to be this March in London, what's becoming maybe the crypto hub of the world. I have a link in the show notes where you can learn more and also a discount code that will get you 20% off. So click the link, find out more, and I'll see you there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we're joined by Matthew Siegel and Patrick Bush from VanEck. Matthew Siegel is the head of crypto research there, and Patrick Bush is a senior investment analyst. Guys, welcome to the show. Chance. Most people um, in finance in general would know a lot about VanEck, but maybe not in the crypto space in particular. Um, I know you've been an asset manager in traditional finance, but I just went to your Twitter page actually like two seconds ago, and the banner on there says Into the Ether, which I'm assuming is a crypto um, comment there. So I'm just curious, could you give us like a high-level overview of what VanEck does and how you got into the crypto space? Sure. Uh, so we're a traditional asset manager, mostly mutual funds and ETFs, about $80 billion in assets. Uh, but the DNA of the firm is really um, a macro thematic approach to investing. Think of it as uh, a family office with an asset manager uh, bolted on top. And the CEO and owner, Jan, and his family are uh, were very early to identify the opportunity in gold and gold mining stocks in the 1970s with uh, a thesis of kind of Austrian economics and the unsustainable uh, U.S. dollar, and and that proved correct. Um, but we were also just super worried about that part of the business being disrupted. And when Bitcoin um, began to gain prominence, you know, 10 years ago, Jan was reasonably early in recognizing that it could be a threat to our existing gold business and the underlying technology could eventually disintermediate the financial system uh, as we knew it. So we were the first TriFi firm to file for a spot Bitcoin ETF in 2017 when that uh, couldn't get off the ground because of regulations. Uh, we pivoted and started investing into venture to get smarter in the space have since launched a number of actively managed uh, digital asset strategies run out of New York. Uh, but in Europe, where the regulation allowed, we did launch a number of ETFs and ETNs. And uh, one of the first was uh, Solana ETN, actually, in summer of 2021. So, um, you know, I came from a, an equity research background. I worked for Kathy Wood for four years in the Alliance Bernstein days pre-ARC. We were huge shareholders in, in Qualcomm, a big believer in the disruption that they were bringing to radio frequency technologies, enabling the cell phone industry. And when I came across Solana um, in 2020, uh, kind of realized that what Anatoly was doing, optimizing the blockchain for the speed of the hardware was something that was truly innovative and unique and uh, could disrupt something like a NASDAQ. It was the chain that might be able to bring a central limit order book on chain. So we started following it closely. We launched the ETN. Uh, we've been holders of the token and various uh, strategies ever since. But the underlying, like the answer to your question is that we're trying really hard not to get disrupted here. Uh, and we're doing that by bringing products to market, both on the TradFi side with these ETNs, and then also trying to participate directly on chain where we can with some of these liquid token funds. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I think I really appreciate the context on Anatoly and, and kind of uh, that connection with Qualcomm because most of the Solana core guys are ex-Qualcomm engineers. 
So that makes a lot of sense from a personal level. Um, why you know you, you have your own thesis on Solana, right? Um, and and kind of how you guys started with well, Bitcoin and then gold, maybe that kind of parallel. And then now there's these smart contract platforms and Ethereum and Solana and others. And maybe getting a bit more specific, um, because that's not a traditional asset class, I would say, like smart contract platforms. Bitcoin is much simpler to conceptualize. How do you guys think about the state of what is your thesis on smart contract platforms? How do you how do you like decide, okay, we should support this chain like a Solana or like we shouldn't support this chain? How do you kind of see that playing out? Yeah, so I I think about it as starting with some core beliefs about what percent of the existing financial system can and may be intermediated by open source blockchains. And Bitcoin is kind of the killer app 1.0 of that, but because it's not Turing complete and we can't um, embed a lot of automation into that blockchain, then it's most appropriate to comp it versus something inert like gold. Although, you know, that narrative may be changing a little bit with some of the L2s that we're, that we're seeing built on, on Bitcoin. Uh, and that the, the smart contract platforms are going after a slightly different but adjacent market, but still requires an underlying belief in open source money. And I think that's where like we have some disagreements even even within the team as to like, can Solana work if let's say like a Home Depot isn't buying, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of soul to put on their balance sheet to like pay in advance for some of the gas transactions enabled by these stable coins. Like personally, I don't think it can. I think that it requires institutions to adopt open source money. There's a lot of regulatory hurdles to that, but that's what the bull case uh, entails. And then all of these different smart contract platforms just lay on a spectrum of uh, decentralization and performance that the market is in process of sorting out. Um, you know, the regulator obviously agree, disagrees, uh, like on some of these, calling Solana security in the in the Coinbase suit, uh, for example. We'll see how the courts shake out on this. Uh, but it, we basically look for a sufficient level of decentralization and open source code to give us conviction that we're investing in an open source project and not a private blockchain where personally I have zero interest. Talking about the bullish case, you guys made headlines with uh, the very... Uh, uh, bullish price estimation, which took over uh, Twitter. Um, can you talk a bit about that bull case? Like what kind of informed it, how you guys think about it? And you, you obviously you had a neutral case and a bear case as well. So for people who aren't familiar with your guys' writing, can you maybe go uh, into detail and, and describe that? Yeah, I'll do the kind of t- top level and then, and then toss to Patrick here. Um, but basically what we're trying to do is uh, set some assumptions, both at the uh, thirty thousand foot view, uh, what percent of financial activity is going to be intermediated along these blockchains, these open source blockchains, um, which end market, whether it's kind of banking and finance, uh, social media slash gaming, or core tech infrastructure like storage and compute, uh, what are the likely penetration levels for each of those? End markets. Uh, what will the monetate? What will the monetization be in each of those three markets? And which open source projects have the highest chance of uh, kind of monetizing 
the most? And then where will the apps be? And the experiment here was really to, to think about um, wh- which is going to be the chain that, that onboards uh, an app with 100 million users. Because I think what we've seen throughout 2023 is a big rally in, in coin prices, but led by Bitcoin because generally on-chain activity has been lagging uh, the speculation, frankly, in the in the Bitcoin price. And uh, since we're bullish on this space, we want to imagine a situation where that changes and where on-chain activity materializes and where because of Solana's performance advantages, uh, it is maybe the first and only chain to reach that 100 million users on a, on a single app. Um, but I'll leave it to Patrick here to go through some more of the model. Yeah. Thanks, Matthew. So the next component, I think one of the most important parts is kind of gluing that, that top-down overarching thesis um, and then saying, okay, like precisely how would Solana make money? Um, that's something that, to be honest, like we're not sure exactly how it will work. What we tend to come at it is that Solana is similar to a platform like an Uber or an Amazon where there's economic activity on it. And there'll be some t- take rate on that activity based upon the end market. Um, and so that sounds really fine in theory, but in practice, it's a little difficult precisely to pin that down. So we tend to, to ballpark these things by looking on chain and saying, okay, like on Ethereum, for example, what's the fee share between like a Uniswap, like the fees uh, versus what, what it pays to Ethereum versus what the fees are for using the product. And we kind of look at that as like a take rate. Uh, then extrapolate that. So for example, like I think Uniswap must have checked um, the fee ratio to the ratio of on-chain um, gas it paid was something like two to one. Um, so that's kind of how we see that breaking out. So that'd be like a 60%, 66% take rate for the chain versus what Uniswap gets. Um, something that Solana doesn't have as high. So we looked at like some of the Solana DEXs. And so in terms of the fees they collected versus what all of the different blockchain fees were for using those X's, but something closer to like one and a half percent. So when we come at this, we say, okay, well, Solana is going to take like a much smaller take rate um, than Ethereum. But what's interesting is that you started thinking about it further and looking at something like local fee markets. Like Tarun had a really good presentation about how you can start dividing up and pricing different blockchain resources, right? Rather than just doing, okay, it's going to be compute units on Solana. Maybe you want to make things cheaper. Like if you're going to do something in parallel, it might be a lot cheaper than something that's, that's going to be contentious for the same piece of state, just at a base fee level. Um, and so we, we kind of end around and said, okay, well, maybe there's, there's a path where Solana can monetize things explicitly based on what they're being used for. Something you don't really see in EVM that's not really possible. And this is because of the local fee market's design. Yeah, I found that piece really interesting because... Doug Colquitt has been in the Ethereum space and he talks about price discrimination. He's like, Ethereum in some ways stumbled across having this constrained base layer and then you can do price discrimination through L2s. And he talks about like an example would be Microsoft, like you're going to charge enterprise customers more than you might retail. Same thing with colleges, in-state tuition is going to be cheaper than out-of-state. Um, and he's like, in some ways, I think a lot of people have addressed Solana as not really having that, like this, you have these cheap fees across all transactions, no matter what the value is actually being processed. Whereas something like these local fee markets maybe in the future is something that you guys hint at can actually be utilized to almost have this form of price discrimination, which does come in effect today through priority fees. Um, because obviously, if there's a hot contested state, those fees do go up. And we've actually seen that happen over the last few days. It just doesn't affect the whole network, which is obviously one of the biggest bull cases for Solana as well. I have, I have like two sentences I just have to read from this article, because I thought this was so great. It says, Solana has translated its pioneering spirit into an ecosystem philosophy of risk-taking and techno-optimism. 
pretty great uh, verbiage there. More so than any other ecosystem, people building projects in Solana are creating things that may provide a tangible impact on everyday life. Um, this sounds pretty great to me. I'm just curious, like what uh, what um, what what makes you say that? What attracted you to Solana? Is this recent? Is this like some of the upgrades that happened in 2022, or what? What kind of gave this uh, bullish view? Patrick, you wrote that line. I'll let you go first. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to like last year and there was quite a bit of talk about Solana and its potential and all the things that can be built on it. And I didn't really buy that. I was actually kind of bearish on Solana and had a lot of pushback internally. And then when FTX happened, I sort of felt validated. Um, because you think about like, okay, like Solana hasn't had a lot of traction from users, TVL, developers, whatever standpoint. And in, and in fact, those have shrunk over time, right? And even today, um, they're, they're much, much lower than they were as a percentage of all crypto. And I also saw FTX happen and it was like, okay, like this thing is, is, is indeed hamburgers. Like I, I likened it to, you know, something like Moon River, Moonbeam on Polkadot when they had a Nomad bridge hack, they lost all their TVL. They lost a lot of their VC capital and they were, they were going to the deep, right? Um, but then like something bizarre happened is that it didn't, it kept going and it, it was, it was pretty profound. It's like an evolutionary biology. You have like two schools of thought, or at least they used to be that there's something called punctuated equilibrium versus gradualism, where gradually the changes happen over time and advantageous species will win out, right? Versus punctuated equilibrium was like, Hey, there's like a really bad event and all the ones that don't have some sort of like um some sort of like uh, attribute die out right and so you had that on solana it wasn't like gradualistic it was like okay there's this like horrible event the the chief uh, backer of the chain is gone and suddenly you have like this ecosystem that's like you know kind of on its own and, and and it survived like not only did it survive but it thrived like when when bonk happened it was like oh okay this is all bad and so that's kind of like how, you know, we got back into it. And then it started looking like more and more that they would start resolving the different issues over time. So thinking about local fee markets and like, and, and quick messaging and things along those lines, it made a lot of sense that they were going to solve some of the underlying problems. And so then it became like, you know, looking at like all the different EVMs and thinking like, okay, like, is this stuff going to scale? Can you have like a really big consumer application? Or more importantly, can you have like, multiple consumer applications that depend upon one another to write state at the same time or to process transactions or whatever the cool kids call it these days. And, and the answer is like, no, not the same as Solana. It's not even close. And so like when you see projects like Backtack NFT or you see HiveMap or Teleports, um, you see that there's a lot of capability. And so like in the future, we're thinking, okay, like there'll be like a super app, but the super app won't be able to play one app. It'll really be like a constellation, like a dozen or two dozen apps. Like, Think about having something like like credit card payments on chain. Maybe you have like you have pools where people put risk capital, right? And then you have like different entities that are, are doing verification and identity. And you have all these things kind of bundled into one transaction. So for that, you need something like atomic composability, able the ability to interact, and also like a pipeline that 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 will allow that throughput to happen um, because it's not contentious that won't be affected by other parts of the state. And so it's like, wow, like you can't. You can't do that on most EVMs, right? Like that, that's why I thought it was really cool. Um, it just has the potential to disintermediate. And then like, you think of like all the different ways that they're looking at the consumer. Like they're trying to solve problems for people. They made a phone. Like everyone's like, this is so stupid. The phone is the most idiotic move I've seen. But it's like, this is what people like, 
are interested in. They're going to get something new that like affects everyday lives and you can potentially do payments from your phone in places. Like that's, that to me like kind of like brought me around. So that's how I see it. I think Patrick's describing a bit of like internal volatility that didn't necessarily manifest in the, in our like token movements where we've been pretty steadfast since 2021 that this is a different type of chain. And if the monolithic uh, version can succeed, then they'll be able to capture more of the value uh, versus Ethereum, who is um, sharing it with with all these L2s. So simply put, like we think Solana has pricing power that if the, if 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 the transactions and users materialize, then uh, fees are going to go up, uh, pricing is going to go up, and yet it will still be the cheapest blockchain uh, to use. And, and one way that we can kind of put that into context is if you look at our Ethereum model versus our Solana model, for ETH, we have a base, call it a 5x return in our base case. And that assumes that uh, ETH captures 70% market share of all the value uh, sent back and forth across open source blockchains. For Solana, our price target is a 10x return, and yet our terminal market share is only 30%, less than half of Ethereum's. Uh, and you know that that's because that basically they'll be able to raise prices and capture more of the value without sharing it with the L2s. So, just some context. Yeah, those are great. I do want to pull this up. I don't know if you're on YouTube, you can see this because we've talked about the base case um, and also the bull case, but we haven't really said the price. So if you haven't seen the report, um, the base case by 2030, the uh, the price is at 335 is um, what the analysis has here. And then it's over 13,000 uh, for the bull case. And we've already kind of talked about some of the, the reasons uh, for that bull case. One of these being in the report, it's that Solana will be the first ecosystem to actually host an app that has 100 million people. Um, which would be game changing, not for not just for Solana, but um, all of crypto. Uh, I do want to touch on a few more of the challenges that you put in the report, or like what maybe holds you back when you think about Solana. Um, one of those we talked about was the cost. Um, you had another one that I thought was interesting, and in that you talk about the network outages that happened, you know, in, in 2021, 2022. Um, and you know, we, there's been a lot of improvements through Quick and Stakeweighted QoS um, through that, and there hasn't been any outages lately. But one thing you mentioned is Fire Dancer as well. And that institutions may have an extremely hard time looking at Solana, seeing that, those past outages and actually choosing the chain. Um, and that fired answer, even though it could bring anywhere from, let's just say, 10 times in, uh, in performance improvement, it could actually be almost like you almost restart from zero to prove out how hardened the protocol is in some ways. I'm just curious because you have a touch on the institutional pulse. Do you think that's still a big factor? We did see Visa, I think it was back in August, you know, actually announced that they're going to start doing settlements on Solana. Do you think that's changing? Because in the report, it seemed like you'd still thought that was a pretty big uh, problem for Solana right now. So uh, I'll go first. And uh, one one thing that really attracted me to, to Solana personally was uh, the fact that Anatoly's building in America. And I think that if the SEC's draconian regulatory attempts are like, as they recede and crypto starts to win these court cases, then, uh, and we can see it just in the last like week or two, it's American. Finally, for the first time in like all month, uh, the biggest increases in prices are coming during U.S. trading hours and the ETF has catalyzed some U.S. interest. Uh, and I, I think Solana has kind of more beta to that American story and was more depressed partially because of it. And the outages kind of played into that. Whereas if you thought that they were going to solve the outages, then the upside was so much more uh, because of the potential to capture the U.S. market. Patrick, anything to add on Fire Dancer? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, so thinking about like 
when people get pushbacks with theory of all the centralization vectors, like you talk about like, okay, there's like only a few relevant block builders. They talk about the fact that there's only kind of like one market for block space or maybe two going forward. And maybe they'll talk about something like there'll be only a certain number of relays. And so I think that in the Solana, I think the problem that I see is that Firedancer will have massive capabilities and people will say, okay, well, there'll be like two clients in the system, like no big deal. But I don't see how people wouldn't switch over to Firedancer if it was a lot more um, lucrative. And I think another thing I have a serious problem with this is that I mentioned those block builder things uh, because I think something like someone like Jump building this is inherently going to have a substantial advantage over everyone else. And they'll probably become the chief block builder of the ecosystem. And so I think like having this massive capability and throughput of, of a fire is cool, but like from a technical lift, it may be really difficult for entities to compete from a block builder or a searcher standpoint. And so like having that one entity being controlled that much of the chain, I think something I'm quite uncomfortable with. Um, and there's something else to think about right now is just kind of like how MEV works on Solana. And to me, it seems that there is like a ton of like OCAs that currently are, are happening because you need to be so close to each of those um, validators in order to like see the transactions come through and, and respond accordingly. And obviously like Gito is going to fix it. It's going to fix it by kind of doing a speed bump. I, I, I just, and then having like more of like a, a set block that goes up rather than continuous streaming shreds. So I just, I just worry that going forward, that's something like Fire Dancer is going to be able to take that over. And then you're not going to see like anyone able to compete in that block building segment. And so that's, that's like one thing I think. Um, and the other people who are more technically gifted than I and understand it very deeply are, we're just, we're discussing it potentially like a Fire Dancer could potentially, um, um, change historical state. Now, I'm not sure about that. That's like a big, a big leap, but that's something that like people discussed. I saw most people said, no, it's not possible, but I'm, I'm not sure how that will play out. Maybe I'll start in chronological order there. Um, I think your first point was about, well, if, if there's Fire Dancer as the second client, it's much more performant, then people are probably just going to switch over to that and that's going to be the dominant one. And uh, I, that's, that's correct. I think that's probably what will happen over time. Um, the, the main benefit of the newer client is actually at first, mostly from a security perspective. Right, because you're recreating the code base in a different language from the ground up, and so you're minimizing the probability that there's a catastrophic failure event um, in 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 the code base, right? And so that's that's actually what Tolly says at least. Like it, it keeps him up at night, and now he can sleep slightly easier. Um, and then over time, there are plans to make automatic failovers. So what the idea is, people would run kind of both clients, and then in the event that Firedancer has a problem, it would fall back to the Solana client. Um, the Solana Labs client, and so that would help with liveness. But to be to be to be fair, that is not the case when it goes live, um, and and so that'll take some time. Um, and then I think your second point was about so Jump is doing this, and they're going to have an inherent advantage um, in in kind of block production. Um, I think there's certainly something to be said there. Um, like it's it's a very difficult code base to understand, but. At the end of the day, it is open source. So people who are interested, and there's uh, certainly quite a few parties who've shown interest looking at the code base. Um, that's not to say Jump won't have that advantage. They will. But it is open source. And so I would say it's, it's a bit more fair than maybe the TradFi uh, uh, version uh, uh, of how this stuff works. Uh, and then the th the, I think the third thing you mentioned is about the state. Um, you, you can't... Um, so I'm not sure what the context there is, but you cannot, you cannot change the state, um, historic state. Um, you might maybe 
there might be different versions of like uh, uh, the ledger, in in which case you, you would have to um, uh, uh, build some kind of trust guarantees to that. But the state itself, which is what everybody cares about, you you, you can't change that. Um, but those are like that. That's kind of uh, really cool that you guys are exploring that deep into the ecosystem because that's stuff that's like extremely extremely um, uh, deep and and shows like a good understanding. And so I'm I'm, I'm really glad to see that. Um, and I guess maybe talking about that, um, since you guys are, are like this deep into Solana, you guys are obviously also quite deep into just crypto in general and Ethereum and, and L2s and the modular roadmap. I'm kind of curious from a technical perspective, if you guys have any high level thoughts on comparing the integrated thesis and the modular thesis of blockchains. Matthew, I know you mentioned, um, you kind of hinted at this with like the fragmentation of value capture between L2s and Ethereum. So it seems like you've thought about it there a bit, but... I'm I'm curious how you guys think about it and how it plays out in like five to ten years. Yeah. Um, now, I think there's still so much that's uncertain. So a lot of these roadmaps are more theoretical. But uh, what we see in Web two is that the winner take all characteristics of digital platforms are considerable because the marginal cost of like serving the nth customer is so low. Uh, so that's how we ended up with, you know, what Warren Buffett calls a natural monopoly for Google. And, you know, there's two things that can disrupt that. You can either come after them on price, uh, or you can come after them on regulation. Uh, we're kind of seeing hopefully a, a combination of those two that will catalyze, uh, large blockchain market shares, um, increases over time. It's my personal view that one or a handful, uh, a very small handful of L1s are going to capture the lion's share of that value. Um, You know, there'll be some interoperability, like, you know, all these bridges that have come out that like market share is very volatile. It, it, It comes and goes. It seems to me like the bridging market is being taken up by um, you know, increasingly Coinbase and Rails that are regulated in some fashion. Uh, so what, as, the, as a portfolio manager, I'm, I'm trying to kind of hold these collection of call options in the right proportion so that the chain and the token that captures what I think is going to be the lion's share of value is at least in the portfolio. Uh, and then we're kind of like constantly handicapping those probabilities and trying to hold the coins in, in proper ratios. Um, so it, it, you know, maybe that, maybe that value is split between a monolithic and a modular. Uh, maybe it's all modular, maybe it's all monolithic, but within those two categories, uh, ETH and Solana are, are clear, winners, at least from my perspective. And so those are my uh, largest positions. Patrick, you may have, I think you talked about this on Bangalist to some degree, and Matthew, I think you commented as well. Um, this is when you wrote the report on Ethereum, and the base case for that by 2030 was 11000 something dollars. And um, one big factor you talked about were the L2s, and is there going to be a long-tail distribution of L2s, or will you have a few that almost have more negotiation power over ETH? So the more commoditized in some ways that these L2s are, the less differentiated they are, the less power they would have over Ethereum. But if you had like two or three, you know, they might be able to say like, hey, we have the users here, we could actually go off and, you know, go to Celestia or do something else. I'm just curious, has your vision evolved on how you see the L2 landscape playing out? Because at one point, I think every app thought they needed a roll app. And then, you know, then it was like, okay, no, we just need a few L2s. But then those L2s are all going to have frameworks with their own, their own roll app. So I'm curious how you think about that. Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 kind of difficult because like when you go back to the heart of it, like Ethereum is changing its whole business model. And what's become more and more clear that there's different entities that will be doing different things that like process and sell down to Ethereum or whatever. And so like really what we're talking about, like whether it's L2s or data availability, like there's some sort of like taxing rate on Ethereum at some point. And so it's like from a system standpoint, it's like Ethereum by itself, execution, data availability, settlements, consensus, like that, that's one value proposition. But then if you start like sharding it off into different um, components, then it becomes much more different. And so from my standpoint, like I'm starting to see like the, the commodification of the L2s, like I could see a lot of paths for that. And I, but at the same time, I also see like reasons why execution won't exist on Ethereum. So maybe you have something like chain like automation or you have risk zero or you even have like Uniswap X, right? Where like you can move a lot of the transactions off chain. And so I'm, I'm not quite sure how that take rate is going to play out. Um, it's difficult to say because imagine like what if Ethereum starts enshrining L2s? Those become like the dominant paradigm. And then they could probably extract more value from that. And so it's so in flux right now. It's really hard for me to say like my views change quite a bit. But at the same time, I could see, I could see like something materially changing just because again, like just thinking about like all these different entities that they might, they might have like maybe, maybe like the execution becomes like the dominant value accrual component of this, right? Maybe not. But if it, but if it does, like that's, that's obviously not good for Ethereum. So. Um, it's it's like it's really hard to say what's going to happen with that, but we're definitely thinking about it. So it wasn't a perfect answer for you, Garrett. I'm sorry, but it's uh, it's it's a rapidly evolving space. But you know that's a potential bear case for Ethereum, right? That like it's chosen settlement DA layer. Maybe lots of the competition with DA. Maybe like the DA network effects don't matter. Maybe like the DA other factors don't matter. Maybe like you know you don't really need a valuable DA layer. Maybe you have multiple DA layers. I don't know. Um, maybe like the, the bridging value of like Ethereum as a settlement system. Well, that's all that matters, right? It's because there's value there. You bring it elsewhere. Maybe that's not really valuable. So like the way in which they're kind of gluing all together is through this case where like, okay, ETH's mo- like money and we can export that money to other ecosystems and kind of give it like security or whatever. Um, so that could like help it. But from like the initial standpoint, how we understand chains today, that it does seem like it's, it's changed a bit more bearishly. Sure. Yeah, if you look at like the volatility of L2 tokens versus ETH, it's, you know, at least two to one, oftentimes three to one. Uh, And then if you look at the underlying volatility of market share of like TVL or transactions or users, uh, L2 volatility is similarly like a two to three X what ETH is. So um, when allocating capital, uh, you know, that, that volatility matters a lot. Um, and, uh, for, for me particular personally, uh, it's reflected in like just order of magnitude difference in position sizes. Quick break to tell you about an upcoming event. I promise you don't want to miss it's Blockworks biggest and best institutional conference called DAS London. It's a two day event happening in London this March. We're going to have over 700 institutions, 130 speakers, and a couple thousand of us all under one roof. Crypto is in a position for the first time to actually onboard these institutions and they're showing up. We have companies from BlackRock to Visa launching real products in the space. We have the real world asset narrative taking off. We have things like payments that have been exponentially growing. And then we have things like DeepEnd happening in the Solana ecosystem. There's a ton of capital right now in this institutional space is going to be coming 
on-chain. It's going to completely change the industry. Whether you are an institution or you're a retail user or you just want to learn more about what's going on in the space, this conference is for you. You're going to be able to meet some of the best and smartest people in the space. The speaker lineup is absolutely incredible and you'll get to hang out with me. But the best part is you actually get 20% off your ticket if you use Lightspeed 20 when checking out. That's Lightspeed 20. I put a link in the show notes. Um, I recommend buying this today because one, you'll forget about it. Two, these ticket prices go up every single month. So anyways, I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back to the show. Matt, you're, you're using metrics such as TBL to assess some you know, aspect of these ecosystems. I'm curious what metrics you guys like using to compare ecosystems and what metrics you like just don't believe in and, and maybe are overrated. Uh, well, first, I believe in price. Uh, you know, the market usually pumps for a reason. And in this uh, asset class, you have to respect the pump because uh, that's capital formation, right? That's what makes this asset class unique. That's why it has recovering CFA. And my like Twitter bio is because crypto enables like a different form of capital formation that traditional DCFs don't don't account for. Um, so yeah, we're looking at price. Uh, we're looking at um, transactions. We're trying to look at repeat users. That's sometimes that's harder data to find. That's something Patrick's done a good job of trying to isolate. Um, definitely fees, like especially during the bear market, we really tilted towards profitable, you know, blockchains, which functionally meant uh, large overweights in ETH. And we're looking for that inflection point where. Uh, Fees are accelerating and issuance is decelerating. Uh, and that's where you can often find uh, the most explosive price performance. So I'd use some uh, examples like kind of render would be one that like came to market with a lot of hype, tons of issuance, token was up to five bucks, then crashes back down to one. But under the hood, you can see like, oh, users are starting to pick up, partnerships are starting to pick up, people are using this product, but we're in the trough of disillusionment for the price. And that's where we try to put uh, like more substantial capital to work is to find those types of projects that describe those as the sweet spot, like a year, two years after launch, uh, there's been tons of inflation, the early holders are disillusioned, uh, but users are coming in. Okay. We want to, we want to bet big on that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, talking about, uh, respecting the, the pump, the Ethereum ETF, uh, was announced, uh, um, uh, and there was some news about that recently. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And do you think we ever see a Solana ETF? Uh, so by the Ethereum ETF being announced, I think you're probably referring to the headline on the tape yesterday, November 9th, that BlackRock is looking to file for a spot. Uh, ETH ETF, uh, Vanek filed for that uh, years ago and refiled in September. So uh, there is an application pending. Um, the deadline uh, for the current round of applications is May of next year. So let's you know get these BTC products off the ground, but it does appear like we're on a glide path towards having spot ETH ETFs uh, by spring of next year. Um, remember, these already exist in, in, in Canada, in Europe. Um, spot Bitcoin ETFs... Um, around the world have taken in more than $500 million in flows in the last month. The year-to-date number is 650. So we're doing like three quarters of the flows in, in the last four weeks. But yeah, I'm, I'm not going to quite answer the Solana question yet. And um, actually, that brings up an interesting question. Maybe it's the crypto degen in me, but 
Um, so obviously there's Van Eck, there's BlackRock, but I would say you guys are with your Twitter presence, uh, with the Van Eck Twitter account, uh, I would say maybe like a fan favorite. And, and I'm curious how you guys think about maybe um, the, the the community aspect of crypto and kind of competition amongst kind of other types of asset managers in, in, in crypto. Uh, yeah, this is a participatory asset class. The whole point is to hold your own keys and custody your own coins. Um, like Everyone is at their own uh a point in the life cycle of investing. Some people, if they're investing for their kids, they don't want to hold the coins. They want a regulated custodian to hold them. They want to be able to see it in their uh, brokerage account, uh, which is kind of what an, what an ETF uh, enables. So um, we think it's important to, to touch these smart contracts directly. We have a community NFT project on ETH. Um, we're um, bringing to market some NFT functionality uh, with this segment product that you'll see coming out soon. Uh, so we're, do- we're donating 10% of the uh, revenues from uh, EFUT, which is our Ethereum futures product, back to Protocol Guild, which is the community of open source ETH developers. We're exploring uh, similar things for Bitcoin. Um, it, it, you know, when you look at surveys of uh, all the wealth that the boomers have and how much of that is going to be you know, given to the next generation and then what they're going to invest in, uh, we're, we're going after that part of the market. And uh, if we can build that community, then when those folks need someone else to hold their, their keys uh, instead of doing it themselves, then you know, we're right next to them. So thanks for the shout out. You know, get out there and look at our ETFs and please buy them. Thinking about the model that you guys had again, and so it's really a DCF that you run on both Solana and Ethereum back in the day. Um, and over 67% of the cash flow that you have is coming from MEV, so like, or the value. So like MEV is a huge factor here. Um, but my bigger question is just running a DCF to model L1s. What else, what else are you looking at? Is that really the biggest factor? Because to me, it's L1s are so hard to value as a DCF in some ways because it's more of like the GDP of an economy that you're looking at. Our analysts talk about this all the time. When you have applications to me, like DCFs are a little bit more straightforward, like DYDX. Now they have their own app chain, so that does change some things, but especially like an application on top of Solana. Um, but then again, if the biggest money in the space and the institutions all use the DCF, whether that's the best way to think about value or not, if everyone's kind of converging on that analysis, then objectively it is the best way to value an ecosystem. So I'm just curious how you think about it only you know, using a DCF to value an L1 or like maybe what else you look at. Sure, I'll go first. Uh... We think one of the advantages we have in this space is um, what's, well, as close to permanent capital as you can get. Let's, I mean, Jan has extremely strong conviction. He's the largest investor in uh, our token strategies, and he wants us to be looking at the winners over two, five, ten years and not focused on the month to month. So that's what the DCF really lets you do is um, bring your long-term vision into the space and see how the market is valuing things now. Um, so I, I think there are other metrics, you know, price to TVL, price to fees, um, and all those are uh, relevant for contextualizing like the current state of the market, but they don't do a great job of um, bringing like some creativity into how the market may value it in the future. But cur- curious to hear from you, Patrick, like what, like you, you built this DCF, did you, uh, what other metrics did, do you think uh, people are looking at? Uh, I had guidance from the Michelangelo of the project. And his name might be Matthew. I'm just a simple artisan, the the working man, because 
blue collar and his hard hat. But um, I don't know. It, it, it's it's like because you're trying to project a world in the future doesn't exist, and you're trying to say, okay, like here's the things that happen and glue it back to a price today. And like the whole point of the exercise is like, okay, like what's potential for this? What's a possibility? And like going through a DCF is like it's kind of a metric that we're kind of memeing into existence because logically you can value it in other ways like usership or how active those users are, user attrition, TVL, stable coins, right? Transactions, whatever, right? And so I think like it's the best way because you're gluing the value to something that people like understand who are going to invest in it. And like with all different kinds of memes in investing, whether it's like price to sales or price to equity or whatever the new ones are, right? Like it's all about like the people care about that. And like the point in which that we're doing is just setting the floor. What's the expectation? What should we be looking for? Why should we be looking at it? How is it something you already know? So it's kind of like giving someone like, hey, here's this new thing, but actually it's kind of like this old thing. So here's why it makes sense. Like here's how you evaluate. It. And so that's why I think like the, D- the DCF is like a really good way of looking at it because then like, you know, TradFi brain just says, yeah, asset, money, up, good, multiple, right? Like that's just how it works. And so that I think it's like a really good tool and like any other tool, like it can be used effectively for certain things in other ways, suboptimal. So like realistically, like if you want to look at profitability, there's no such thing as that, but then saying like, okay, like what percentage of money is going to use system versus going out for the token. And that's like what matters at the end of the day. And like, we thought that like a DCF or like some kind of economic value of what's going on there is a good way of doing that. And again, like going into some people, something people understand, like they get Uber as a business, they get Amazon, they get, you know, the app store. And so that's kind of like how, how we went about this. And, and when you think about the number one critique of digital assets is that there's no intrinsic value there, but the way that some of these tokens are architected, there will be value that flows back to the token holder. Uh, and, you know, it's our job to try to size that value and then, um, value it uh, based on like a terminal cash flow. So we're even, t- we're taxing these cash, these cash flows before we, we DCF them. Like we're really imagining a world that uh, open source blockchains are comprising, you know, five to 10% of uh, the value across our financial networks. So it'll be integrated uh, with, with the existing financial system. One thing I'm curious about, we've talked a lot about Ethereum and, and Solana and the different perspectives on on open source blockchains. We haven't really touched on Cosmos. So I am curious if you guys have any thoughts on value capture and, and kind of institutional mindshare of something like a Cosmos and app chains and how you guys think about those ecosystems. Yeah. Uh, so the way we think about the positions in general is that uh, we have kind of core uh, positions where product market fit is established, uh, tokenomics are reasonably clear, and the ecosystem is flourishing. And those positions you know, are multiples the size of the uh, fringe positions where uh, maybe product market fit is established, but um, not at scale, or you know, tokenomics are not completely sorted, or uh, there's major lockups that are coming, and those positions are much smaller. And then there's moonshots where you know this is true venture, and maybe the tokens, maybe there's no product market fit, maybe there's no product, and those positions are maybe in order of magnitude even smaller than that. So in, in the first bucket, 
it's really like ETH and, and Solana. Um, and then Cosmos from the uh, like a fund manager's perspective, just the, the, the monetization, it seems to be still very uh, contested uh, and a lot of things that are that are up in the air. But the, the technical, uh, and Patrick's long been a fan of kind of how the, how the chain is architected, the technical characteristics of it hold a lot of promise. And, you know, the last couple of weeks, we're starting to see those those inflows. Like looking at something like the Cosmos, like why I thought it was interesting was that you get to build your own chain. And I think that was fascinating from the standpoint of like being like a Uniswap or something that is able to totally capture all the value that's leaked to Ethereum. But it's become clear over time to me, like building that is a massive lift and it takes a lot more engineering talent and, and quite frankly, like funding. But I think that like, you know, once a, an application becomes mature, that's kind of the ideal place to do something. At least like an app chain doesn't have to be the Cosmos can be L2 or whatever. And so Cosmos always had the interesting approach of like, okay, use how you, you can build a chain. Here's the software for it. Do what you need to do. Use Tendermint, like, you know, it's bootstrap consensus. And then you can glue it using um, some, some sort of mechanism to like understand how your application works relative to the blockchain. And so you have this like asset blockchain. Um, and so the problem I have from like a value accrual standpoint, at least like the Atom token is like, what's the so what? Like, why, why are you going to buy security from them. Like, why not somewhere else? I guess the biggest thing, like, people will be like, oh, well, the Atom token is like the most valuable. The other one is like, it's because of the way in which Tender, or, yeah, Tendermint's design, the Cosmos works, is that like, Tendermint's like an oligarchical system. So it's like, you'll see the same like top 10, 20 validators in all these chains. Uh, so like, say there's 64 chains right now, like you'll see like, you know, Cosmos Station, Bobol, or, or Friends Valley, whatever, all these, right? And so the, the problem I have is like, okay, like if you're going to build the security hub and you want to make sure that, you know, this new bootstrapping chain gets like the validators that it needs, like, why do you really need to go to the Cosmos hub? Why would you just go to the validators themselves? So the validators themselves right now are kind of like vetted entities that everyone knows who they are. And everyone kind of understands that like the resources consensus layer, if they do something bad at one chain, they'll probably lose their other chains. And so to some standpoint, like it doesn't really seem the Cosmos hub would be like necessary. If that's the way you view it, um, does that make sense to you guys? Like, how do you see that? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of friends in Cosmos, so I'm not, not going to say anything uh, too too crazy. But I think I, I agree that the, especially you're framing on kind of the so what, right? I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions there. I do think it makes sense for some folks like who are comfortable being in their own islands, like a DYDX, and maybe they want full vertical control from a technical perspective. But the economics, I'm not really, I don't quite, I, I think there's just too much to be worked out there still. At least for the Adam, for the, for the, for the Cosmos hub, right? Yeah, and, and then, the, yeah, so I mean, the oligarchical system that you said, that's an interesting way to put it, but it's, it's actually, you know, pretty true. It, you know, I mean, some people might uh, argue that, well, you know, they're very involved validators and that's kind of what you need and, and there's a lot of kind of governance and, and, and you know, Cosmos is kind of known for that. Um, as opposed to something like um, like a Ethereum or, or other networks where there's like these institutional validators who kind of control most of everything. Um, so there's some trade-offs, but yeah, I think I, I think I, I like Matthew and how, how he's categorized this, which is like there's like the core positions and there's kind of the fringe positions, which which might be useful. And I think I, I would personally align with that. A lot of interesting things going on in the Cosmos for sure. And I'm a fan of a lot of the projects. And I think that like, Something to be said about these people who are building there. Um, but yeah, 
they've just really struggled to find like a cohesive narrative. And I think that's really hard. Like one of the great things about the cosmos is that you do have complete sovereignty. But because of that, you don't have something that's simple to understand. Like there's no clear message. I think Ethereum is really easy to understand from ETH, like this maximal decentralization. And then you have Solana, which focuses on speed and low, low latency and high throughput. Um, like it's pretty easy to understand where Cosmos is just lacking that completely. I do think the tech's kind of there. But one thing you're seeing across all ecosystems is a convergence, right? Like you're seeing that, like we talked about the end game with Vitalik. I think he posted that in December 2021, like the end game for Solana and Ethereum are very similar where you have like the beefy builders and then you have, you know, where end users can verify the chain. And then kind of the same thing is happening with Cosmos. It's like app chains, but now you're going to the shared security models, what they're leaning into. And that's really the way that they're trying to have value accrual for Atom. And in some ways, like every chain kind of has this, maybe Solana is one big difference is right now they're not looking at like layer two app solutions at all, but you do have the SVM that popped up this year, like um, Eclipse bringing the SVM to Ethereum. So anyways, it's just really interesting. I do think Cosmos kind of like struggles there, but I'm curious when you guys are thinking about crypto, how much do you think about macro in general? Is that something that you're paying attention to? I know you're, you're looking at two, five, 10 years out. Uh, yeah, we're we're definitely looking at macro. Uh, you know, Jan Jan describes the, um, our house as a macro thematic shop. Uh, our well, his investments in crypto span from venture to you know BTC and ETH to these private funds, and I can observe that his and the firm's macro views impacted his check writing activity uh, over the last two years. Like he basically stopped writing checks into venture a couple of years ago. Um, and a lot of the ways that our active portfolios were positioned uh, reflected like the tougher Fed liquidity backdrop. Um, so that's beginning to change somewhat. And the setup looks a lot better for next year. Um, and then on a tactical basis, it kind of depends on the strategy. Um, like one thing we're quite proud of is um, de-risking our liquid token exposure right when the Coindesk article came out about FTT um, a year ago. And like, was that a macro observation? Kind of, but not really. Uh, um, but having a global presence, like traders on multiple continents, uh, an operations department that is used to handling 24-7 transactions, uh, a, a heavy focus on compliance, uh, that we think gives us some extra extra skills in navigating like very volatile and tricky markets. And we think we've executed well on that. Uh, but you know, Jan doles out the money and like if there's crypto money, he wants it invested in crypto, not um, in cash for long periods of time. Uh, so generally with these strategies, we're, we're long only, we're, we're directional. We may be um, in, in a little bit of cash uh, from time to time, depending on the macro, uh, but we're not shorting. We don't want to take counterparty risk with, um, with trying to hedge positions. We basically want to be long, strong, and then uh, avoid the worst of the downdrafts. I want to add one thing um, that doesn't have to do with macro. It's more it's more geopolitics. And I will say like for the last like 30 called 40 years, you've had kind of a unipolarity in the international geopolitical system, right? The United States has been dominating. And alongside that, you've had domination by the United States financial system. 
And I think we're at a moment where we're moving more towards a multipolar, maybe even a bipolar kind of setup where there's definitely China, maybe Russia, maybe India, maybe whoever else has come into play. And I think because of that, crypto straddles an interesting paradigm where it's like a neutral financial system. So logically, like if you have like uh, a unipolar system, right, geopolitically, the bash unipolar financial system, like you suddenly have come to a place where like, okay, maybe like there's multipolarity geopolitically, why not? multi-plurality financial system. And like, I think that's kind of like crypto's at like the moment where it could actually prove that. It could be like a financial system that is, that's credibly neutral, right? That's outside of the paradigm of the control of one of these major powers. And that's why I did, that's why I'm always really fascinated about this. And then like, stepping back to like something like Visa, like Visa kind of already takes this as is. And what I mean by that is to Visa, Solana, or Visa's not necessarily building things on Solana. Right. It's more like you say, Hey, here's like a, a network I can use. I can use Ethereum. I can use Solana. If people want to sell, use that. I'll dang it. I'll do it for them. Right. And that's kind of like the essence of what they're doing. And so like, that's how I feel like crypto is right now. It's a new place where people can transact value globally outside of the system. That's, you know, under the purview of some kind of dominant entity. Now that's not the house view where we're US space, but that's why I see it potentially. No, but that, you know, that's a great point about the multipolarity because our, our active strategies, we have emerging market equities, active strategy, emerging market bonds, active strategies. And the, the bond team like allocates almost entirely based on what's going on in the, in the politics and the geopolitics of the countries that they analyze. Um, uh, we were early to be bullish on El Salvador, uh, made a lot of returns in El Salvador fixed income last year. El Salvador's just upgraded again uh, by S&P yesterday. The uh, economy keeps outperforming there partially because of the Bitcoin uh, gambit. So there's a lot of cross-pollination on, on the geopolitics and most of our, our shop is pretty aligned that, as Patrick says, uh, crypto is a, is a neutral alternative for a lot of frontier and emerging markets that financially privileged in the U.S. generally just don't even think about. And so it creates a lot of alpha opportunities. Yeah, that's really well put. I like your mental models on that and how I like the Visa example of facilitating payments, just use a tool that gets the job done. I am curious if you guys have either personally or maybe through the um, um, on, on the VanX side, if you guys have any interest in specific verticals in crypto, so like, for example, Deepin with like Helium, um, right, uh, or, or DeFi specifically, payments, any verticals you definitely uh, don't care for, maybe like NFTs, although I know you just mentioned you guys have like a community NFT thing coming out. Um, what are your thoughts on the different verticals? Yeah, uh, I guess the the use cases that we're excited about, uh, like buying and hodling Bitcoin, uh, I frankly think that a lot of the activity in the space is just uh, people uh, finding new and interesting things to do once they're holding on to paper BTC profits. Um, you know, stable coins as a as a new payment rails, uh, NFTs as a form factor for like Fortune 500 companies, uh, and uh, Depend because the world is hungry for physical infrastructure with lower take rates than Verizon and AT&T and, and Uber, just to put it you know, very simply. Uh, and we think that consumers can really get excited about uh, bootstrapping physical infrastructure projects with crypto at its core. Uh, so we, we did make an investment in, in HiveMapper, uh, which is a dash cam mapping project on Solana. Um, and 
I'd say Deepin kind of punches above its weight in, in, the, in, in the various strategies uh, compared to the product market fit that's been found so far. So these are kind of moonshot projects, uh, but we think yeah. a handful of them kind of have to work for the whole, whole space to work. What about you, Patrick? What's your, your favorite thing in crypto? Um, I really love the disintermediation narrative where you have all these like this entities they are just rent seeking. They're taking too much. Like think about Uber. Uber is taking like, I think something like or, uh, 30 to 40% of what the driver is making. Um, and extrapolating that, that doesn't seem like a fair way of doing it. I think there's a lot of room for like disrupting them. But what is that premise on? It's premise on like building a new network and having a new bunch of drivers that are able to, to do that, people using it. I think like crypto offers the best way of doing that. So I think I like something like like um, Teleport, which is a Solana project. Um, I think I think Helium's super interesting, like how it was able to to bootstrap this massive ecosystem. Like they got to like over a million hotspots. And give me, don't get me wrong, like IoT didn't seem like doesn't seem like the ideal place for getting value, but going in towards mobile, like that's really cool. Or if you have a five dollar mobile plan, like that's incredible. And they're going to be expanding that to the United, the whole United States. Like that's a thing that like no one else is doing. Um, there's other projects like Giant Protocol. It's not in Solana, but it's 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 building like a uh, decentralized trading of mobile bandwidth. And so, like those are the kinds of things that like impact people's lives. Um, that every single day you can look and be like, okay, well, I don't know how this is happening, but it, it's it's affecting my life. Like like I, I I talked to this project called Composable Finance, and they commissioned a study where they looked at way people in Lebanon merchants interact with the blockchain. And most of them they didn't even know that they were using like a blockchain product, right? Most of them just know TRC20, right? They, they exchange payments using USDT. And they see like the applications, like they'll see like, you know, the, the Tron wallet as they, as they would just like anything in, in traditional finance, like a, a WePayer or whatever else, right? And so just like not even knowing it's on crypto is important, touching people's lives, that that becomes like a really useful use case for the stuff. So that's like, that's like a sliver of some of the things that I really like. Yeah, I love those. Amir, do you do you want to do a rapid fire today? Yeah, we can do a quick one. Sweet. Um, Let's do it. All right. So Matthew, Patrick, I'm just going to ask some random questions and just answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, and you know, if you don't want to answer, that's fine. If you want to expand further, it's fine as well. All right. So if... Okay, assume you are showing... Uh, a family member, crypto for the first time, which application do you show them to convince them to use crypto? And let's go Matthew and then Patrick in order every time. Um, I'm showing them uh, a chart of Bitcoin versus every other asset class in the world on a one, three, five, and 10 year basis. And then I'm showing them this new uh, uh, cold wallet that I just got, which is a, it's called Arculus. It's like, um, it's a metal credit card with NFC technology inside that that's, this company has like 80% market share in uh, metal credit cards that they make for American Express and JP Morgan. Uh, and they've got patents where they can put the NFC technology into the metal credit card. And that's like the core business, which is 99% of their business, but they just launched this cold wallet. Uh, and it's my thesis that um, eventually once 
you know, a uh, hundred million, two hundred million Americans own Bitcoin, that they'll be spending their crypto and their fiat off of the same card, and it'll be something like this with like three FA uh, and a combination of custodial fiat, self custodial crypto. Um, I, I don't mean to like just pump my own. Uh, uh, PA bags here, but uh, I, I think it's a very innovative use case. And I would remind them that like, we were able to sell our USDC the weekend uh, that SVB uh, went under, and we were able to sell that USDC on a weekend and buy ETH, which had much more upside uh, on Monday. And that's a transaction that you can't make in fiat. Uh, so I think that's how I would describe it. I'm like a little more like ideologically motivated by the space because of the potential. And it's something like data ownership, I think is really important to me. And all these rent-seeking extracted value entities bother me. So my family kind of knows that I'm a weirdo like that. So I would show them something like Demo, where I'm like, hey, like Demo is something that plugs into your car and tracks your car and gives like whoever you want to sell that data to the ability to buy that data. And then you get value for that as opposed to like Google where you're getting value out of the product for sure, but not probably not as much relative to what the data is worth. So I like having that like idea of like data sovereignty and the ability to sell it. And I think like having a demo, there's a lot of so what's right, like that you can, you can do out of it. Like you can eventually have like an NFT your car on there. You can have it tracked. You can have it standardized to when you sell your car, you go through like an NFT and send some paper entity. So I think it's something that's really interesting that could potentially impact people's lives. I'm going to give another answer just because mine was too long. I'm just going to say also that I would um, invite them to take a drive in my car with me and watch me earn money by mapping my surroundings with the Hive Map or Dash and then show them the money that shows up in the Phantom Wallet every week and explain that we are like taking a chunk out of Google's margins 1.1 kilometer at a time and we're going to own this network. Like that's the most captivating use case in all of crypto. Actually, I have a Hive Mapper dash cam right here. Nice. Um, so yeah, big fan. Um, okay, so we talked about what you would show them. What would you advise them to not do in crypto? I think that retail investors should stay away from leverage, generally speaking. That you know, most of the pain of the last cycle was due to folks borrowing money irresponsibly in a super volatile asset class, and uh, you know. We, we should avoid that, right? Look at all the Bitcoin miners that, that went bankrupt and had to restructure. They've all now learned their lesson, by the way, and they're, they're all sporting much, much cleaner balance sheets. Uh, I, I hope that uh, like retail investors can follow that advice in, in the next cycle. Yeah, I, I would tell them to avoid influencers. Um, there's just so, so much dissemination of false information out there that gets people to do things that are suboptimal, pushes them into scams, whatever else. Like, so I would, I would caution them against that. And, um, that'd be probably my one thing. Uh, okay. I mean, I've changed my mind completely on, uh, Bitcoin's role in a smart contract oriented portfolio or strategy. So I had a view that Bitcoin was really distinct uh, and it, it, like one's allocation should be thought of almost separately to allocation to smart contract protocols and, and dApps. And I, I've changed my mind on that. Uh, I think that there's enough going on at the Bitcoin L2 level to 
make it a reasonable alternative for certain applications. Uh, and yeah, that's that's been a change. Um, no one else on the team agrees. Oh, I you know honestly, Matthew, I wasn't listening. I was trying to think of my own. <laughs> that's cool. Um, and I still don't know the answer. I think Patrick changed his mind every month. Yeah, I I tend to do that. Just having having like I think okay, the, the biggest one probably would be like NFTs. Like NFTs, like a year, a year and a half ago, or let's go like like two or three years ago, um, was just like to me like a speculative nonsense vehicle, and just seeing like what something like backpack has been able to do and what's potentially possible in terms of like identity or showing some sort of like debt position or whatever with NFTs, like really expands like the the use case, and I think there is like a lot more than meets the eye. And I think that like, it's like, we're talking about modeling it today based on like, oh, it's going to be art collectibles in the future. Like in having some sort of like similar modeling exercise that we do where it's a percentage of that market, right? But it's like, that's not the way you do it. Like there's a massive potential to all the things that you could do. And like, I, I, I just, I was so remiss in, in, in being dismissive of that. So that's, that's something I've changed my mind. That's a good one. Okay. What is the number one mistake you see investors making in this space? Position sizing. Uh, just putting too much in overly risky assets. I, I would say I would, I would rip on that and say like not having like an invalidation point and sticking to it. I think it really matters that you come into an investment with an understanding of like when you take it off of you, when you puke out of it, whatever else. And if you don't do that, like you let things run against you because you start, you start justifying your position. You start looking for the narratives. You start like the, the cycle of hope. And that usually leads to like very poor investment. So that's the biggest thing. And then, um, yeah, being being emotional about the that's, that's those are the kinds of having a weird attachment to it for some reason. Okay. Final question. What is your ideal state of crypto in five years? What do you want to see happen? I would like to see central banks buying Bitcoin for their reserves as a way of kind of validating the the stranded assets that uh, have resulted from this maniacal focus on net zero. Um, like I think that you know printing too much money has been really bad for some of the poorest countries in the world, and they're finally seeing an opportunity to distance themselves from that Fed-based money printing and using Bitcoin to capture you know methane or uh, excess flared gas. And turning that into a state reserve is a fantastically powerful narrative uh, that is going to grow. Um, so really excited what, to see what's going on, in, hopefully in Argentina on the 19th, where Malay's odds has been rising. I noticed that the largest private Argentinian oil and gas company just announced plans to start mining crypto with their uh, vented methane. Uh, so really hopeful that, that that narrative takes off. It does seem like the world is um, starting to cancel this unrealistic net zero narrative, and I am here for it. Uh, I, I would like to see crypto force 
the data juggernauts to give something back to the people that provide that data and generate that data. I would like to see that generate something that leads to like a bill or some sort of way in which it gives people data rights, data privacy. And I think crypto could be a factor for that. That's kind of like my big hope is that it's able to disintermediate a lot of these rent-seeking entities in general. And that it's able to provide value to the people or the people actually who are making things or providing, you know, um, services to the real economy rather than like, yeah, being directed through some entity that just like has a huge take rate on, on their on their productive activity. So I think it like expands the ability of, of people to like actually get value for their their work. And no, no, I'm not a, I'm not a communist. No, but you're right, Patrick. Like the biggest deflationary impulses usually lead to consumer welfare gains broadly, right? And like a number of entrenched losers and then consumers in general uh, benefit. And that's why we're both here. Yeah, I, I love those answers. Um, Matthew, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on. I'm, I think everyone's probably blown away in how deep you are in this space. Um, it's, we're really lucky to have you to have in such a professional firm like FanX. So um, thank you so much for coming on. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Yep. We'll see you next time. All right. I've got a little ending note here. First, thank you so much for listening to the full episode. If you really liked it, hit subscribe. But secondly, make sure you sign up for DAS. This is BlockWorks' biggest institutional conference happening in London in March. I've included a link in the show notes and also a discount code. Get 20% off. Make sure to use Lightspeed20 when you sign up. All right. I'll see you there. And I'll see you next time on Lightspeed. Lightspeed.